This is the Road to Calvary. Uh, and what we're looking at in this series, we've been kind of working through it. Um, we started way back in the beginning with the fall of Adam. And, and last week we talked about the sacrificial system. And what we're looking at is how um, all the things that happened between the beginning and the cross. Um, all the stuff that has progressed along the way that, that brought us to the cross, that brought us to Good Friday and to Easter morning. Um, and it's easy to think of it as, uh, because like a lot of times Easter series ends up being the, the weeks preceding or the week preceding or whatever like that. But, but what we're looking at this round is everything. This is an all encompassing, um, all-encompassing sort of trip to the cross from Adam. And and what we're going to be looking at, so last week we looked at the sacrificial system, and what we talked about was how God established the sacrificial system, and it was all like this typology, this type, um, this this mirror image of what the cross would be um, well in advance, thousands of years before the cross actually happened. And and we looked at the book of Hebrews and how um, the author of Hebrews sort of draws out the story of Christ and the cross and the, the crucifixion um, um, narrative, like all of that stuff, our redemption, our forgiveness of sins, like everything, like it's drawn out of that, that old sacrificial system and how God anticipated the cross um, when he gave all of this stuff to Moses and we established the temple and, and everything. I mean, like, like all of it um, points, to, points to the cross. And, and we see that from the beginning, um, from the fall, from, from Adam sinning against God, God was always in the process of moving us to redemption, where we, we fall, we stumble, we, we, we fail, we sin, and, and we're always on the way back um, to being forgiven through Christ's sacrifice for us. And so before we dive into that, we're going to be looking in the book of Isaiah. This is a very famous passage. Um, I think I've actually preached it several times since I've been here. It's, it's, a, it's a, um, sort of the gospel in the Old Testament, and before we get to that, um, I, I want to talk for a second about grocery shopping. Uh, anybody who's been near me for the last uh, week, which is just my wife and kids, um, has heard me just rant about how insane grocery shopping is at this point. Um, you, you, you go to the store and people are buying up things that don't make sense. Um, I, I went out, um, we were trying to stock the food bank with toilet paper. It was one of the things that all these things that we needed, and I had orders from people in the town needed this and that and flour and sugar and all kinds of other stuff. And I, I went out looking, and um, I, I found, um, I found that, that toilet paper was almost impossible to get. And everybody, it's the running joke, you know, and I just wanted to get it for the food bank because, um, because I, I figure eventually people are going to start needing it, and, you know, we were worried that we wouldn't have any way to help. And so went out, and I'm looking, and I'm looking, and I'm looking. And I, I managed to buy some, and then in another spot, I was in Walmart actually later in the day, and I bought a few rolls, and, and I'm walking around, and there was a rush of people through the store to the paper section because the employees were bringing out packages of, of white gold, um, you know, and they were carrying them two at a time, and, and there were employees standing around to guard the toilet paper, and, and you could only get one. And there was a, a very stern man there like, hey, hey, you only get one. You know, don't, don't take, you know, it was crazy. And like the whole toilet paper thing in general is crazy. Um, you know, it, it's not just that, though, like flour and sugar. And, you know, you can't buy flour right now at, at the grocery store. Or you actually, I think you can in Big Sandy, though. Um, 
but you, you know, all of these things I tried, uh, Terry asked me to look for hand sanitizer, um, and, and nothing, you know, or bleach. I went looking for bleach and, and the bleach section in every store I went to was completely bare. And even like the color safe bleach and stuff like you, you probably wouldn't think to use to disinfect was gone. And, um, I, you know, talked about it, complained about it, you know, ranted about it, theorized about it. Um, but I came across an article my brother sent me that, that really jumped out at me. And it was like a psychologist talking about why people are buying toilet paper. And, and there are all these suggestions and all these guesses. And the thing that, that I thought was most interesting was, um, it was, it was this fear of not having it was the biggest driver. Like, what if? You know, the reassurance, you know, like of, of all the things I might not be able to get, what if I can't get toilet paper? What if I can't, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying hard not to make jokes about this. Um, but if you watch, like in times of fear, in times of stress, in times of anxiety, people respond by running to the things that make them feel safe, that make them feel rescued, um, you know, normalcy and cleanliness are one of the things that we as Americans, like, we love that. We want to be clean. We shower way too much, and, um, or some of us not enough. Um, we, you know, we wash everything. We sanitize everything. We boil everything, and those are all good things. But, like, people look at this thing and say, well, I need safety. I need this. You know, or I need safety. I need to stockpile as much food as I can. Um, I, if you've watched the news, you've seen lines around the block at gun stores. Um, which is crazy because, you know, the fact of the matter is we probably aren't going to fall into anarchy. You know, it, it's not very likely that that's going to happen. Um, and, and uh, you know, people are, people are buying ammunition. Oh, I'm going to need ammunition. What if I can't get it? You know, what if I can't get this? What if I can't get that? And you got people saying, oh, well, you know, I, I know people haven't left their house in weeks, you know, because – they're terrified they might get sick, and so the safety of home is everything. And you look at people who are out there ranting, why hasn't the government rescued us yet? Why hasn't this happened? Why hasn't that happened? And, like, the thing I wanted to, like, get to as I point to all of this, like, as I talk about all of this, um, in times of fear, we run to the thing that we think will save us, that we think will rescue us, that we think will offer safety. Um, you know, for some of us, it is in abundance. I need to have as much as to eat as I can. I need to have a weapon to make sure nobody is like going to be able to mess with me. I need to have this. I need to have that. I need to have adequate toilet paper because I, I guess that makes me feel safe. Like, but we run to stuff that makes us feel safe. And a lot of times, um, we can see what's God in our lives based on what we run to, based on what gives us security and safety. You know, is it force? Is it comfort? Is it food? Is it money? Is it this? Is it that? Is it, you know, having the government out there to save you? Is it having a job? Is it this? Like, like we can tell a lot about what's most important to us, what we rely on most based on what we run to. In Isaiah, which is the text we're looking at, in Isaiah, um, Isaiah is like writing his letter to the people of Israel several like 70 years before israel is destroyed by babylon and israel has this bad habit that when enemy nations are around the assyrians about this time and a little late a little later it's the uh the babylonians like um when they have difficulty and they have fear they make treaties with enemy nations um with egypt or they they start worshiping false gods saying this god will save me because my god can't 
um, or they'll look for military solutions or whatever. And God over and over again is saying to Israel, come to me and rely on me. I will save you. Come to me and I will take care of you. Don't run after false gods. Don't run after wealth. Don't run after allies in battle. Run after me. I've got you. In Isaiah's story, they return to God. Later, 70 years later, they don't. Um, and the Babylonians destroy them. Like in, in Isaiah's story, the God they, they repent and they turn to God in prayer and the nation turns it around kind of. And... Um, the people of, you know, the people of, like, the opposing army, like, sets up camp around Jerusalem, and a plague hits them, and in a, like, overnight, the army is decimated, and they flee rather than try to continue their siege of Jerusalem. And, like, that is, that is how God saves them. Later, they don't, they don't return, and God allows the city to be sacked. And so, as we're diving into Isaiah, that's the situation. Isaiah has predicted all of this destruction, all of this wiping out of the nation. He's predicted, Isaiah has predicted that they would go off into exile. They'd be taken away to Babylon. And here's this prophecy that Isaiah gives. Um, right before this, Isaiah gives a prophecy about how God is going to rescue his people. And it's a very triumphant, very like powerful set of texts about God saving his people. And then we jump into 52, and it's a completely different tone. And so we're going to start here. This is 13 to 15. In chapter 52, um, see, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised up, raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. So now he goes from talking about God's right hand coming and delivering his people, God's mighty right arm, and they are expecting, they're expecting a knockout punch, like a, like a Mike Tyson. I don't, probably nobody, a lot of people aren't old enough to remember that, but I, I watch Mike Tyson fight sometimes when I'm, when I'm, you know, distracted or, or whatever. I'll put him on in the background while I'm working. And that guy, he would, he would throw these punches that just decimated guys. There's a reason his fights lasted like 13 seconds. It was because he had a hard, hard right. And um, that's what they're expecting. God's right hand is coming. God's right arm will be revealed. And then when he gets to the point where he starts talking about the right arm, he says, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. What that's a reference to, it's a reference to the cross. Like if you really read this passage, you start looking at it, um, the, the abuse and the beating that Christ took during his trial where, where he was on trial and they physically beat him in the courtroom. And then he was um, lashed repeatedly and beaten with rods and, and abused horribly and then nailed to the cross and hung there and, and like bleeding to death on his way there, like barely alive. Um, and in fact, actually, like it was in Roman times, like the, the, the Roman Empire, one of the things that they did, it was illegal for a Roman citizen to be whipped more than 39 times. Because after 39 times, there was a pretty distinct possibility you were going to kill them. And literally, it would be because you would like take so much of their skin off that when they stood up to walk away, they would leave important pieces behind, and that would be the end of it. Christ was 
beaten well beyond that point because um, Pilate was trying to avoid executing him. He says, well, let's just beat him horribly. And they, they whipped him and scourged him and, and, and flayed him, took his skin off and flesh and like horribly disfigured him. And when it says like, oh, my servant, my right arm, my strong right arm, my hand that's going to come out and deliver this knockout punch, um, he's going to be disfigured. He's going to be marred beyond human likeness. By the way, if we jump back a little bit, there's a double meaning there. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. There's two ends to that. After the cross, Christ is raised and lifted up. He's put at the right hand of God. He is like exalted because he was obedient, because he died for the sins of mankind, because he cre- like, like provided the way for our redemption. But beyond that... He was also raised up on the cross. And in the book of John, we see where John repeatedly draws out this idea that Christ's glory is in the cross. When he's raised and lifted up on the cross, it's this thing that puts out there like, hey, this is his glory, his death, his submission, his suffering for us is his glory. And so part of what Isaiah is doing here, well in advance, I mean, this is written 70 years before the... Um, before they went into exile, and literally hundreds of years before Jesus was born, 700 and something years um, before Christ was even born. Um, But he's saying what's going to happen. He'll be lifted up. This is also possibly a reference back to um, the story of the wandering in the wilderness. So there's this great account where, not great, there's this account, and it's kind of weird, in isolation, but if you read it in light of the cross, there's a whole lot of cool stuff happening there where the people are complaining against God and rebelling, and so they, like, God sends snakes, and the snakes are biting them, and people are dying from the snakes, and, like, what happens is um, Moses makes a snake out of bronze and lifts it up on a pole and holds it, and as long as people kept their eyes on the raised-up snake, it would be like they would survive, they would be healed. Um, and that's like, of course, pointing to Jesus. Jesus was raised up on the cross. And as long as we keep our eyes on him, as long as we pursue him, we're healed. Um, what does this have to do with anything? Well, um, on the road to the cross, like early on, God predicts this. He says, listen, the way of the cross, the way of Calvary, the work Christ is going to do is going to be horrible. There's going to be like, he's going to be disfigured. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be broken. Um, he'll look beyond human likeness. Um, he, he, he will he'll be destroyed before all people. And not just physically, but he's humiliated, hung naked and mocked and abused, um, spit on like, like he is brought as low as he can. And he's the creator of the universe, does that. And on the road to Calvary, it was always the intent. It was always the plan that Christ would suffer for us. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. Now watch this. Sprinkle many nations. That word sprinkle is a weird one because it might have a couple of different meanings, right? Like it could mean one thing. Um, um, it, like sprinkle is sort of the NIV and the NASB uh, translated as sprinkle. And like the general reading then is he'll sprinkle his blood over the nations and they'll be shocked at the grace that God gives. And they will be shocked at the, the um, offering of grace that they receive. Um, the kings of foreign nations will shut up because they 
will suddenly like be aware that God sent his son to die for them. It'll shut their mouths. Um, for what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Meaning like they will suddenly understand God's grace. They will suddenly, like the Gentiles, the non-Jews, will suddenly understand what God has done for them. Will suddenly understand forgiveness. Will suddenly understand grace. Because God never intended to abandon the nations. I like, can just save the Jewish people. Like he intended to save everyone. And those who don't know him will be like woken up and that is kind of where the gospel ends up going the gospel spreads like wildfire amongst the nations and they shut their mouths and like know him the other possibility sprinkle might be um the the word is kind of it's only used a few times and in the setting it's kind of a weird usage um like the way the grammatical construction is and some folks assume that it may be he will shock them he will be they will be offended and and like um, they will be uh, brought to a place where they they are so like um, awed or um, you know uh, brought low by what they see that they won't speak out and and that's another possible reading of it. But the the gist of it is ultimately that having seen Christ, having seen God's right hand on the cross, they'll reach this point where they have nothing to say anymore. They'll know the truth and the truth will set them free. And this is like God's plan on the way. And so last week we looked at the system by which it would happen, like the, the tabernacle, the, the sacrificial system, the sacrificing of lambs for forgiveness. And this time we're talking about the reality of the Son of God being crucified, um, being horribly broken for us. Um, this is a poem that we're reading. It's in five stanzas, three verses each. I'm going to try and do the next several stanzas a little quicker so that we're not here all day because you'll just change the channel. Um, <laughs> um, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. So that, like, escalates quickly, to quote Ron Burgundy. Um, it, it goes from, like, hey, nobody's going to believe his message. Like the Son of God, the right hand of God will show up and no one's going to believe him. The right arm of God will be revealed and no one's going to buy it. And he's going to grow up like a tender shoot, like meaning he's not going to look strong. He's not going to look powerful. He's not going to show up. Um, he's not going to show up like as this mighty warrior. He's not going to be this great, good-looking guy. Um, I, I always think it's funny if you look at, uh, at movie stars um, and compare them with real life heroes, how many movie stars are just much better looking than real life heroes. And like, we have this sort of desire for our, our heroes and our, our, you know, our, our leaders and everyone else to be kind of good looking and have these qualities and all this other stuff. Like, and it was no different then. Like, that's why Saul ended up King. Saul ended up King because he was like, you know, a foot taller than everyone else and good looking and, you know, muscular and athletic and everything else. And, and David was the opposite. He was a small man. He was not like this big, imposing fella. Um, and so he grew up like a tender shoot. He wasn't this strong guy, like a root out of dry ground. What that is a reference to is the idea that he came out of more or less nowhere. Um, and in fact, actually coming from Nazareth, nobody took him seriously. It's like hillbilly town. Um, people often, in fact, there's a phrase that was applied to him. It was uh, uh, probably... Uh, 
a common insult or a, uh, an idiom of the time. Uh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so they said about Jesus, can anything even good come out of Nazareth? It's almost like, can anything good come out of West Virginia or can anything good come out of Canada or, you know, whatever, like these, these things that we, I love you guys. I'm totally joking. Um, but I'm trying to make the point, like, like they looked at him and, well, can anything good even come out of Nazareth? What do you even know? You're from nowhere. You have no family. You have no connections. Um, there's even rumors that you don't have like a father who was your father, like that you were like this, this born out of wedlock kind of guy. Like, that, who are you? There was nothing to attract us to him. And in fact, if you look at the birth of Christ, you know, it's not Easter, but like it applies here. If you look at the birth of Christ, Christ was born in a barn or actually more likely in a cave. And he was surrounded by animals, like farm animals in like, like a trough. I mean, it was not a nice place. Um, and the people who came and worshipped him were people who were foreigners, and they were the shepherds, the low of the low. There was no fanfare. There was no great announcement. Oh, my gosh, this wonderful king has been born. There was nothing. He was born like nowhere with nothing to attract him, folks to him. Like the only reason that the, these folks knew to go and worship Christ was because angels announced it and a star led the wise men. Like that was it. Um, he didn't have a great upbringing. He didn't have a great beginning. He wasn't the student of a great rabbi. He wasn't any of those things. Um, he was despised and rejected by mankind. And if you follow Christ's teachings, the people in the know hated him. And ultimately, at the cross, he was a man of suffering. And he was familiar with pain and rejection. His friends walked away. He was beaten. He was abused. He suffered. Um, he, he, you know, called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like, like he acknowledged the fact that he was, like, God poured his wrath out on him. Um, he was held in low esteem. And so, like, like Isaiah predicts this. Hey, the Savior that's coming, it's going to be the opposite of what you people want. Um, and they're looking at this. These, these are people who are reading this. They would have been going out into exile. They would have been waiting for a military conqueror to save them. They would have been waiting for a guy like Judas the Hammer Maccabee, who later, like, liberates Israel from Persia. Like, they, they wanted a monster, an action hero, and what they got was this. Surely... He took up our pain and bore our sufferings. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Now watch this. Um, in the ancient, like in the world, world of ancient Israel, like the ancient Jews, they believed that to be hung on a cross till you die was a sign that God hated you. It was a sign of God's wrath on you. And that goes way, way back to David's son Absalom, who ends up hung from a tree and and, like, it's a sign of God's hatred on you. Um, like, this, this whole thing, like, the, or actually, I think Saul uh, was impaled on a spear and raised up. It's, anyway, um, like, it's this early sign. God despised you if you were hung for a tree. That's what they believed. And so as we look at this and we read it, like, oh, my gosh, they looked at him on the cross and said, God hates him, and that's why he's stricken. God hates him, and that's why he's afflicted. God hates him, and that's why he's punished this way. Um, he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Um, again, this is 700 years before Jesus was born. And there's this prediction, like he's going to take 
all of our iniquity, all of our brokenness, all of our wickedness, and he's going to be punished for it. And the scriptures tell us that. You go to the New Testament, it tells us that God poured his wrath out on Christ, and that he's the propitiation for our sins. That's a big word that Paul uses, and it refers to the fact that he takes punishment and we are forgiven. A switching of permanent records, if you will. Like, and it's free. The road to the cross was always going to be this. It was always going to be Christ coming, living perfect, becoming this perfect example, obeying God where we could not, and then dying for us. And a lot of times we look at following God and we assume, I have to dress this way, which is kind of the cool thing about online church, is because I suspect that people go to online church right now that are afraid to go to actual church. They're afraid of the judgment of other believers. They're afraid of... of um, you know, I, I, it's that joke I hear a million times um, if I've heard it once. Oh, I walked in the building and lightning hasn't struck me yet. He must be on vacation, you know, like, uh, you know, but in reality, like, lightning ain't going to strike you. God is calling you in. He has forgiven you. He has, like, if you have faith in Christ, if you belong to Jesus, if you are his man or his woman, that forgiveness is a free gift. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to be good. You don't have to be better than anyone else. You don't have to speak the right words. You don't have to wear the right clothes. You don't have to wash up so that you can be bathed in the blood of the lamb. You don't have to be perfect. You're forgiven because Christ died for you. His punishment has brought us peace. And his wounds have brought us healing. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And, on the, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. Now, I'm going to pause right here. Like, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. And a lot of us can stop right now and look at the last few weeks and say, where have I looked for safety? Where have I looked for salvation? Where have I looked for security? What is my God right now? Is my God comfort? Is my God entertainment? Is my God being the most right guy in the room so that I can trash on the people who are politically different than me? Is my God the government saving me? Is my God like, you know, the 357 I keep on the nightstand? Is my God like power and strength? Is my God the world? Or is my God the God of salvation? Is my God Christ? Um, and it's easy to go astray because it's hard to trust God. It's hard to trust a God that you don't know because you haven't like gotten to know him. And everything you've seen about knowing him doesn't look good because a lot of times Christians do stupid stuff and make God look bad. It's the truth. I know it's shocking. Um, but a lot of times that happens. And so my question is, like, like, this is God's right hand. And everybody was expecting God's right hand to be this like power punch. And instead it was a lowly, lowly servant who died on the cross, who was punished in our place, and we're called to just believe in him. And a lot of times we look and we say, nope, my own effort will save me. My money will save me. My whatever will save me. This is what my salvation is. Forget that stuff. I'm going to do this. Or I'm going to deny that there's trouble, and my salvation is going to be laughing until all of this is over, or being entertained or drunk or whatever until all of this is over, like, like, we run to all kinds of things because we're like sheep who have gone astray. I, for those of you parents at home, it's a little like setting your kids down to homeschool and walking away for 10 minutes. You're going to come back, and they're going to be everywhere but where they're supposed to be. Um, you can't earn your salvation. It's a free gift. You can't earn God's grace and God's favor. It's a free gift. Um, each of us has turned our own way, 
and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so God looks at us, those of us who think that shooting our neighbor is going to save us, or shooting some guy who shows up at my house to steal my toilet paper is going to save us. God looks at us and says, that guy loves toilet paper more than he loves me. Maybe he's not saying that specifically. Or that God, that guy trusts the government more than he trusts me. That guy trusts in his finances more than he trusts me. That guy trusts in a full pantry more than he trusts in me. And even knowing that we love those things more than we love him, Christ died for us. God laid all of our wickedness on him when we were wicked and didn't deserve it. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? And so Christ was arrested illegally. He was put on trial in a guy's house, instead, like in the middle of the night, instead of in a public trial like he was supposed to. 700 years early, he predicted all of this. Um, he stood before his accusers and he refused to speak on his own behalf. He just accepted the, the punishment that was coming. He refused to defend himself. He um, like knew it was coming. He didn't protest. He didn't call them out. He was ready. He did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Um, yet who of his generation protested? And no one went and protected him. No one went and called it out. The only one of his followers that followed him to the cross was John. Um, the only people who followed him the whole way through were his mother and a handful of women. Like, those around him refused to defend him, refused to do anything. Like, nobody protested, hey, you're killing God's right hand. Um, For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. By the way, Christ was buried in the a grave that didn't belong to him. It was the grave of a rich man who offered it. It was a brand new grave. It was not defiled. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit on his mouth. And Christ didn't deserve any of it. He was cut off from the land of the living. He was broken for my transgressions. He was punished. The whole time, the whole road to Calvary was about this brokenness, was about this forgiveness. Um, And my question for you again and again this morning is, um, as we're on the road to Good Friday, as we're on the road to Easter, um, what are you trusting in? What are you looking to? Like in this time of fear and frustration, or even when life is easy and nothing is a problem and everything is, you know, like it's, it's the most comfortable and wonderful time in human history to live, are you trusting in the comfort and in the, the, the peace that your possessions bring you or in the escape that alcohol provides or or whatever, are you running away and finding comfort in that stuff, or are you finding it in Christ? God's right hand came to save you, but he came to save you meek and mild, not crushing the enemy. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, He will see his offspring prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied, meaning he'll be resurrected. And by his knowledge, knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Are you right in this life because of the servant, or are you right in this life because of other stuff? 
Are you fleeing to gods that are not God? Because after Christ suffered, he sees life again. He is resurrected on Easter morning, and we're on our way there. Two weeks out, he'll see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. Are you justified in Christ today? Are you finding comfort, escape, freedom, peace in Christ? Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I, I, this is a straight gospel sermon. I, I'm not telling you how to live. I'm not telling you um, what to do. I'm not telling you to go out and feed your neighbor. I'm not telling you to... I am telling you, um, if you are listening this morning, like we are ramping up to Good Friday and Easter, um, maybe from a long way apart from each other, like, like we'll see what happens. Um, and my question for you is, like, as we're going there, is this just a holiday on the calendar? Um, or is this about a Savior? Is this about a man who came and bore the weight of our wicked actions, bore the weight of our mess-ups? Like, when you go to bed at night and you lay there and you can't get to sleep and you're thinking about that stupid thing that you did or that wicked thing that was done to you, um, Christ carried that. The stuff that you hide deep down and you don't want anybody to know, Christ knew it on the cross, and he loved you enough anyway to die for you. On the road to Calvary, and it was predicted hundreds of years, and so Christ went there knowing. He went there knowing this is where he would end up. He would be numbered amongst the wicked and broken. I want to encourage you today, spend some time reflecting on Isaiah. Read this passage, it is powerful. Read John over the next week or two, like preparing for Good Friday, preparing for Easter. Look at the Son of God who died for you. If you've got questions, talk to me. Give me a call. We can talk about this. I would happily spend all day talking about this. In fact, I really want to keep going into the next section, but I can't um, because it is two minutes after, so I'm slightly long. Um, My challenge for you is um, come to Christ over and over. If you've known Christ your whole life, go to him again. Drink deep of the well like the water is free and the well is deep. Like anybody who comes to him will never thirst again um, because Christ died for you. I'm going to close in prayer and I'll let you go. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we prepare for Easter, as we... uh, as we move in on, on celebrating the days of, of um, Christ's death and resurrection, uh, Lord God, I pray that you would help us to, to remember over and over again that this is about your mighty right hand saving us. That, you know, even though we still today look for, look for an Egypt to go out and fight on our behalf and we look for, for high walls around our city to protect us and we, we look for our wealth and comfort or our false gods or our whatever Lord God, our our escapes, our humor, our technology, science, or whatever, we look to these things to save us. Help us to recognize that only in Christ can we be saved. In this time of fear and and worry and everything else, that nothing happens without your will being a part of it, and that that you provided for us. Help us to be people of, of your Son. Like Help us to be your people. Help us to be righteous. In Christ's name, amen. Have a good day.